You're listening to Sound Opinions, and today we are revisiting our classic album dissection of the Beach Boys orchestral masterpiece, Pet Sounds. But first, Greg, very sad news. We have to bid farewell to the great drummer of Rush, Neil Peart. Neil died at age 67 on January 7th, was announced a couple of days after he passed in California. He was only 67 years old. He had been battling brain cancer. We got to interview his bandmates, Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee of the band. It was so exciting for us. We wish we had the professor. But uh, Neil Peart was already pulling back from the group because of the physical toll he said the drumming was taking. We now know he was already fighting brain cancer at that point. Why is this death hitting people so hard in the rock world? There is the Rush cadre of superfan, but above and beyond in any genre, people who appreciate drumming loved Neil Peart. As a drummer, uh, you very graciously thought I could speak to that. Most of the obituaries I've been reading in the mainstream media have been talking about people like Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Stephen Perkins of Jane's Addiction, the guys in Primus and Dream Theater. Okay, there was a level of progressive rock technical virtuosity that Neil Peart brought to his drumming that is undeniable. But his big influences, in addition to virtuosic masters like Buddy Rich. He Mm -hmm. loved the big band drummer Buddy Rich. He loved Ginger Baker of Cream. He also loved John Bonham. It is my thesis Mm -hmm. as a drummer that no matter how complicated the complicated seven-eighths time signatures, Peart was always keeping that hard rock rhythmic pulse. Mm -hmm. You never lost that. He may have, he was infamous for playing surrounded by (laughs) dozens of drums, gong, bass drums, crotales, right? I'm thinking of those wonderful tuned percussion zildjian, not cymbals, not quite bells that he, he uses in the introduction to the trees, right? He had a fascinating life. He was raised in Hamilton, Ontario. His parents were dairy farmers began banging on chopsticks on his sister's playpen (laughs) as a toddler, you know, went to England and thought that's where, you know, my favorite rock musicians make their name. He did not have any success. Mm -hmm. Came back and auditioned for these guys in Rush, who had put out their first album with a different drummer. People forget that. He joined for the second album, Fly By Night, in 1975. The story goes that no sooner had he sat down and played a bar, Lifeson said, "I, I knew this guy. They thought, here comes this guy from the sticks, the the son of a dairy farmer. Not only does he become their uh, masterful drummer, he becomes their lyricist. As Neil said, uh, the other two guys just had no interest in writing words. The professor... We Rush fans, and you and I are both Rush fans, always called him, because there was a brilliant intellect. In his playing, he often said that playing the drums is like doing calculus problems while juggling, (laughs) right? But also in the lyrics, Miss 
mistaken assumptions about Peart because of those lyrics. 2112 was inspired, like many young men in their 20s. They've read Ayn Rand. Mm. And there's this libertarian credo in Rush's great epic, 2112. But Peart, you know, said, first of all, he, he was too voracious a reader and too deep a thinker to be anyone's disciple. And he considered himself a left-leaning, empathetic human being. His life was difficult. In addition to this stardom and the reverence he got in the rock world, he lost his 19-year-old daughter in 1997 to a car crash, and a mere 10 months later, his wife of 23 years to cancer. He began to take bicycling very seriously rush the tour bus Mm -hmm. the luxury tour bus would drive between cities on their never-ending tours he would bike and then motorcycle and he wrote seven books about his travels we're talking about as he would drive the motorcycle across america he would stay in the roadside motel Mm -hmm. he would eat at the greasy spoon diner he loved to talk to real people And, you know, like many a great mind in rock and roll, uh, like Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, this weird reverence that the fans held him in, thinking they knew him, bothered him. In the song Limelight, he says, I I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. Mm -hmm. But he would talk apparently for hours to the truck drivers he met in these diners. Drumming-wise, like I said, it's always that rock impulse. Listen to the midsection of Tom Sawyer Mm. and this flurry of acoustic battery. And listen to something like La Villa Strangiato from 1978. Neil Peart, like the other guys in Rush, they had a sense of humor. That, they, yeah, they incorporate, that's always forgotten about that. That's always forgotten about. They were incorporating a little bit of that Raymond Scott song, mm-hmm. Powerhouse, right. from the Looney Tune cartoon cartoons. The thing that killed me about Neil was the fact that he consistently never felt satisfied taking lessons. Yes. Drum lessons. Yeah. Decades yeah. into his career, yeah, a multimillionaire drummer taking drum lessons so he could get better and never become complacent. That was really, the, to me, the, the badge of an artist. I think there's no finer epitaph uh, for the man than a quote he gave in 2017 about his philosophy. He said, be kind, because everyone you meet is fighting a battle. Most human life is made up of some mixture of happiness and misery. Neil Peart dead at the age of 67, brought happiness to many. from the new beach slang record, The Deadbeat Bang of Heartbreak City. James Alex, the leader of this band, basically the sole constant member in its lifetime uh, since June of 2013. Prior to that, he was in a band called Weston. 
He's a, a rock lifer. He's been in this business mm-hmm. for three decades now. Yeah. Uh, he's also made what he calls quiet slang uh, <laughs> recordings. Uh, Everything Matters, But No One Is Listening. That was the full album that was released in 2018. Now he's back with a full-on beach slang record, The Deadbeat Bang of Heartbreak City, combining some of those quiet slang influences into the garage rock punk that he's known for. Here's a track from the new one. It's called Nowhere Bus from Beach Slang on Sound Opinions. I'm a one-way ticket on a nowhere bus 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 That is Nowhere Bus by Beach Slang from the deadbeat bang of Heartbreak City. Greg, I can't say that title without smiling. (laughs) It is a cheesy title. Let's face it, James Alex would probably agree with us. There is some cheese in all of Beach Slang. I know, I think I know, Mm. what what you're going to attack this as. This is, in essence, a uh, Replacements tribute album. Mm. Okay? It is. We even have Tommy Stinson, the bassist for The Replacements, guesting here on bass on some tracks. We have a song called Tommy in the 80s, which is not a tribute to the young Tommy Stinson, but to Tommy King. That tells you something. Another Another 80s rocker. Another 80s rocker, indie rock, power pop legend, but, you know, the sort who would play to a hundred devoted fans mm-hmm. at, at best at places like Maxwell's or or uh, uh, any of the small clubs that made up that indie scene. Alex's uh, heart is in that 80s indie rock thing. Um, I think uh, if you were not as big a fan of that era and the replacements in particular as I am, as you were, this could be like derivative and just turn you off completely this album because it's to the fore in a way that it hasn't been in the other two studio albums. On the other hand, it is mixed by Brad Wood, ex-Chicago and best known for Liz Fair, producing her records and many other great ones. It's got a great sound. It kicks in the in the songs that kick. I love that song, Born to Raise Hell. It's wonderfully quiet and thoughtful. Yeah, Nowhere Bus reminds me of Waitress in the Sky by The Replacements, but I don't mind that. <laughs> I think that James Alex is a great uh, songwriter, even if a little derivative, in the way that the Hold Steady, you know, is constantly mm. referencing Kerouac and Springsteen. Um, if you don't like Kerouac and Springsteen, that's going to turn you off. If you don't like The Replacements and the things that uh, James is nodding to here, uh, this is going to turn you off. Not a great album, but it gave me a lot of joy listening to it all week. Yeah, I would generally agree with that. I admire James Alex. Uh, he is a he's a believer. He's he, you know he's this guy in a bow tie that goes out there and he believes every word that he sings and every riff that he plays. Yeah, you know that song "Let It Ride" where he talks about rock and roll is my favorite sin. Man, I don't know if I'm good at it, but I'm too in love or dumb to quit.
he's in it. He's in it for the right reasons. It came through when he was a guest on the show, episode 568. He's earnest. Absolutely. And I think that Tommy in the 80s song is a perfect distillation of what he's all about. He loves the transformative power of this music, whether it's Tommy Keen or appropriating a a Jesse's Girl, Rick Springfield riff (laughs) in that that song. There is that. So, you know, originality is not a strong suit of this guy. Um, For that reason, I think the acoustic tracks are, to me... The real revelation on this record. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's done the quiet slang records, yes. But that segue between nobody say nothing right into nowhere bus to me yeah. is the highlight of the record. The rest of it, um, the second half of the record falls off a little bit. I feel like the tracks blur together a little bit. But, yes, there are some redeeming moments. And you know what? As far as I'm concerned, James Alex can keep making records for another three decades because he loves it so much. We come on this loop, John B. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's Sloop John B. from the Beach Boys album Pet Sounds. Now, Pet Sounds was released in May of 1966, and uh, Jim, if we agree on one thing, it's this album. It's an absolute masterpiece, one of the all-time great albums of the rock era, and certainly worthy of a classic album dissection. Absolutely, Greg. The rather modest album in terms of length, 13 tracks, 36 minutes, the 11th studio album released by the Beach Boys, but this was a real momentous event for the Beach Boys. It really marks a before and after period in mm-hmm. the career of this group, this vocal harmony group out of California. When we think about the Beach Boys, I think the first name that comes to a lot of people's minds is Brian Wilson. He is the mastermind of that group in many ways. He was a kid that grew up in uh, Hawthorne, California with his uh, brothers Dennis and Carl, uh, a little bit younger than him. And on his 16th birthday in uh, 1958, he received a uh, tape recorder. Mm. And a producer, a studio genius, was born that day. This kid already had a lot of musical inclination. His, uh, his father, Murray, uh, played a little bit of piano and was very uh, interested in music, vocal harmonies, etc., but saw in his son sort of a prodigy-like quality in being able to recognize great music, disassemble it, listen to it, listen to the components. He would take apart songs on the piano and start playing the different parts basically creating his own little symphonies there in his bedroom or his living room, as the case may be. Throughout his life, clearly, he was able to hear things no one else heard. Yeah, an amazing ear, an amazing inclination to take sound and translate it into his own language or to imagine a sound and figure out a way to perform it, to play it, to sing it. So quickly he was, you know, turning his his brothers into his own little vocal group. Mm-hmm. He loved the four freshmen, the, the vocal harmonies of the four freshmen. I remember to a distant bell and stars that fell like rain out of the blue. He loved Chuck Berry, loved rock and roll radio. 
bringing a lot of these influences into what he wanted to do. Of course, he's in high school. He wants to get into a band. He starts creating a band with his brothers, brings in his cousin, a guy by the name of Mike Love, who would later become one of his closest collaborators as a lyricist, and a high school friend named Al Jardine, who was a pretty darn good guitar player. So they had a pretty cool little group. And at that point, what were they writing about? Even people who know nothing about the Beach Boys know that they had songs about cars, girls, surfing, fun, and sun. That whole concept behind the group, I think it was Dennis, really, that sort of put the idea in Brian's head. The only surf. Here's what we should sing about. Yeah. Here's our topic. We're living on the coast of California. This surf thing's going to be really big, Brian. We should be writing some songs about this. The girls are going to love it. And, of course, being high school young men, they wanted to appeal to this audience, and that's what they wrote songs about night and day. These were the topics of conversation. They became the major American rock and roll group of the early 60s. I don't think there really was a close second to them during that era. Eight top 10 albums from 1963 through 65, Jim. It was incredible. 10 top 10 songs. I mean, this was a group that was going toe-to-toe with the Beatles. We were the only American group that was really kind of withstanding that British invasion and cranking out as many hits as the Beatles were. No, absolutely. They were a phenomenal success, but there were a lot of dark undercurrents below that sunny facade, Greg. I mean, first of all, let's talk about Murray Wilson. The Wilson brothers' dad is a problematic figure. He helped make them stars, but he had very particular ideas. He wanted to control them. You think you got it made? No, we don't. Son? We would like to record under an atmosphere of calmness. I love you. My mother loves you. We like to relax in a second. First of all, you should never have all these people here. Second of all, who's Second but, of all, they're not saying anything. You You're the one who's talking. You forget to sing from your hearts. Carl, uh-huh. Dennis is flatting. Mike was flatting on his high nose. Al was tight. Okay. I try to give you tips, and you think because you've had a few hits, you got it made. They so, split with him in 1964. Almost just brutal, the upbringing they had. When he wanted to punish the boys, he would make them kneel on rice. And he had one glass eye. If he was angry with them, he would pop it out and make them stare into the socket. This sort of thing will leave scars on young men, okay? Brian also is in a sort of precarious state. The superstardom does not agree with him. The other boys are having the time of their lives, all right? (laughs) This is as wild as Beatlemania. I mean, talk about girls and cars and fun, right? Brian has a breakdown in uh, December 64. He's 22. He's newly married. And they're on a flight going from Los Angeles to Houston. He winds up screaming hysterically out of paranoia that his new wife is falling for his cousin, Mike Love. At the same time, Brian has this unrequited crush on his wife's sister. And perhaps most troublingly, the fallout from breaking with his father, the the pressures of stardom, this marriage, where does he fit in life? He has a friend named Lauren Schwartz, who's sort of one of those classic West Coast beatnik characters. In mid-1965, they drop Acid for the first time together. Mm -hmm. And Acid was a presence on the surf scene in the early 60s. You know, the guy who eventually becomes the second longest member after Jardine, who wasn't part of the family, Bruce Johnston. He had debuted with a a single. Uh, The backside was a classic surf instrumental called LSD25. This stuff was in the air. Cary Grant's taking it. Surfers are taking it. Brian takes it. He said he only took LSD a handful of times 
but everything changed. Quote, my trips took me to the gates of consciousness and then on to the other side. On acid, I saw myself stretched out from conception to death, the beginning to the end. Acid was everything I could ever be and anything I wouldn't be, and I had to come to grips with that. I had opened the Pandora's box in my mind. Hmm. You and I have made this point many times. It is easy to romanticize someone who is in a state of drug addiction or a mental difficulty, and Brian certainly had his problems. He was brilliant and created despite those problems, not because of it. I don't want to romanticize. He made great art despite being a mess. The one thing that this whole period of breakdown allowed was for him to remove himself from the Beach Boys as a touring entity. Here was a group that was on the road constantly. They were so popular. They were touring the world. But Brian didn't feel comfortable being on the road. I mean, obviously, you get in a plane and you have a breakdown like that, that's going to scar you for life. He basically removed himself from the Beach Boys as a touring entity and became the guy who was going to work on the music in the studio while the boys were away making the bread on the road. You guys go and forward the brand. I will make the art at home. We'll take a look at the art Brian Wilson was able to create as we continue our classic album dissection of Pet Sounds. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRogatis, and that's a little bit of the Beach Boys with Here Today from their album Pet Sounds. Today, we're giving it the classic album dissection treatment. Now, by 1965, Beach Boys leader Brian Wilson had basically quit touring. He instead wanted to focus on recording, and he did a couple of really brave things to gain creative control in the studio. I mean, back in those days... Artists didn't have a great deal of control over production, songwriting, arranging, who's going to play on the record. Those were all jobs taken over by a talent scout, a producer. The record company would take care of it. Boys, you just show up in the studio, and we got it all figured out for you. Well, that's why they split with Murray. Right. Their dad wanted to run the show. So, right, Brian kicks his own father out of the studio, says, you're not going to be here anymore. He kicks out his own record label from the studio. The, the studio assigned a producer for their first couple of albums. Brian says, no, I don't want to work with you anymore. Mm. He left the Capitol Record Studio, you know, that famous uh, building in Hollywood the that stack has its of own vinyl, studio, yeah. right? He said, I ain't going to work here anymore either because I don't want you guys looking in on what mm-hmm. I'm doing. And basically moved his whole operation to these other studios to emulate his hero, Phil Spector. He said, I'm going to work with the same guys Phil Spector mm-hmm. does. Spectre, to his credit, is going to be quite a cranky dude, invited Brian in to his sessions to see how he worked. Brian picked up a lot of tips watching Spectre, talking to Spectre, and then hiring a lot of the musicians, the so-called Wrecking Crew. We had Hal Blaine, the great drummer from the Wrecking Crew, on the show talking about this era. We're playing all the big hits of the era. Wilson said, here's a bunch of guys who understand my language. They don't dress in suits. They're dressed like me. They look like me. They're sophisticated musically like me. And one notable woman, Carol Kay on bass. That's right. Exactly. Brian's great move at this period of time was to sort of take everything under his wing. The songwriting, the arranging, the production, the studio environment was all 
under Brian Wilson's direction. So he's got control in the business sense, Greg, but he also is taking control musically. Now, he's going somewhere more ambitious, slowly but surely, even before Pet Sounds, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can hear it in songs like The Lonely Sea and In My Room and Warmth of Mm. the Sun, When I Grow Up to Be a Man. These are songs that are kind of beyond fun, fun, fun and surfing USA. The subject matter is more sophisticated. The arrangements are more sophisticated. He's starting to create a sound that is very, very different from where they began. Well, I dig the same things that turned me on as a kid. Will I look back and say that I wish I hadn't done what I did? Brian Wilson goes into the studio in July 1965, and he spends the next 10 months recording this new set of more sophisticated songs. I think the whole key, Greg, at the beginning of that songwriting process for Pet Sounds is what he begins to call these little musical sketches he lays down. Yeah, he called them feels. You know, he'd sit at that piano and uh, look over the hills of Beverly Hills where he was living and, and start creating these textures and tones. Not really sure where it was going, but just sort of meandering on the piano and creating these beautiful feels, as he said. And then translating that into these lush orchestrations that he would use with this band, you know, the Wrecking Crew, Hal Blaine on drums, Glenn Campbell guitar, Carol Kay on bass, as you mentioned, you know, woodwinds and brass and string sections. Here's a great example of that. Don't talk, put your head on my shoulder. He was talking about nonverbal communication. You know, how do I communicate these feels with the orchestration? And then you have that beautiful, creeping bass line underneath by Carol Kay, mm. just creating this very romantic kind of mood in this very innocent-sounding song. song feels so beautiful and so light. There's a, like a, a feeling of being suspended in the air when you listen to a song like Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder. And the album really kind of takes you from that place of total innocence to not so innocent by the end. Even though Brian was uh, recording with these elite musicians in Los Angeles, he had the confidence to control how every note on the album should sound. So if you listen to those outtakes from the Pet Sound Sessions, there are these beautiful moments where Brian's verbally dictating each syncopation to Hal Blaine, who is a really great drummer. And here's Brian saying to him, you know, this is what I'm hearing in my head. Could you play it? Hal, here's how I want to do it. Take it, it's like this. Boom! Two, three, four, bada! First beat on the last bar of the intro, you'll go boom, two, three, four, bop, out. Well, uh, legendary drummer Hal Blaine passed away in March of 2019. We did speak with him in 2015 and asked him about working with Brian Wilson on several Beach Boys records, including Pet Sounds. Blaine talked to us about how much Wilson's sophistication had grown by the time they made Pet Sounds. Brian was deaf in one ear, and I mean that not as an insult. He had amazing hearing. 
but somehow there had been an accident and he lost his hearing as a youngster. And he had to hear whatever we were doing. Brian would call me and say, I want to do a session on Thursday at 2 o'clock. I'd say, okay, Brian, how many guys? Just the wrecking crew, that's all. And Brian would say, Hal, just give me a good backbeat. And Brian was working from his brain. He had chord charts of the changes where we would begin or stop. And Brian would say, I want to hear this from bar 9 to the first ending or something like that. And we would play that and he'd say, well, this time, let me hear a little more bass right here. Now, these were three-hour union sessions. And he'd say, that's great. Thank you, gentlemen. And that was it. We were finished with the three-hour session in 10 minutes. Sometimes the three-hour session ran six hours. And it was all Brian. And it was Brian's ear. He was a genius. That's Wrecking Crew drummer Hal Blaine talking about Brian Wilson's work as a producer for Pet Sounds. His microphone placements were so precise, trying to capture each tone of these instruments. And the way he would stack the instruments was very unconventional. Mm -hmm. Vertical arranging rather than horizontal. He would stack the chords in really unique ways, you know, putting one instrument on top of another to create a third tone that sounded like neither of those two instruments. One of the effects of LSD is a phenomenon called synesthesia, where you believe that you can visualize music as colors. Wilson, again, a quote, I imagined music was like wading through a river until I was consumed by it. You know, he's beginning to really think outside the box, and these stacks of instruments, these feelings, that's where Pet Sounds really begins. It's a very sophisticated way of songwriting, and there'll be three, four, five key changes in these songs. This is very much drawing on the classical tradition, these sophisticated Tin Pan Alley songs that somebody like Irving Berlin might write. Here was a 23-year-old kid, the Surf Sun and Girls guy, suddenly writing these very sophisticated songs. Texturally, this mm. album really hangs together. It really works as one extended mood piece and the way uh, Wilson arranged these songs has a lot to do with it. A song like Caroline No, you know, the opening part of that song is Hal Blaine playing an empty upside down water bottle. You know, mm -hmm. this percussion effect that Brian heard in his head and he said, play that. There's two bars intro. You're going to start dit 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 and then again that's top, the top. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Two bars intro. You know, muted bells on that song, shaker, wind chimes, harpsichord, ukulele, flute, saxophones. The flute and the bass are playing the same melody one octave apart. These beautiful arrangements creating this melancholy mood. And to me, a real tour de force is that song, You Still Believe in Me, which was originally titled In My Childhood. This was one of the beginning points for the album, Jim. He had this song, In My Childhood, with this bicycle bell in the background and a horn that kind of evoked 
his childhood, but he turned it into something else as he began working with his lyricist on this record. This whole idea of innocence, of childhood colliding with adulthood. How do you get that across in a song? He was able to communicate that in this song, this ascending scale, like an ascent to God, talking to God in these songs. This is the way a classical composition might come together. I know perfectly well I'm not where I should be. I've been very aware you've been patient with me. The avant-garde piano that you're hearing at the start, Brian's pushing the keys while his lyricist, Tony Asher, is reaching inside the grand piano and plucking the strings with hair clips and bobby pins, creating this harpsichord-like effect. Push that, push the pedal down and play that thing again. Play that thing. While I push Let's it. get some real strange feels. But Brian didn't want a harpsichord, too brittle. He wanted something more ethereal. So he had said, you know, reach in there and pluck these strings. Uh, so Those were the kind of details he was going for. You're, you're, he's going into the realm of like Stockhausen and yeah. the, the avant experimentalists in classical music. Exactly. So you're combining these like classical scales with this avant-garde approach on the piano. Nothing had been heard like this in the framework of a two and three minute pop song. We'll wrap up our classic album dissection of the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds by looking at its remarkable lyrics and its ongoing legacy. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis, and that's Hang On to Your Ego from a recording session for the Beach Boys' 1966 album, Pet Sounds. Now, Mike Love, Wilson's songwriting partner in the Beach Boys for a number of years, famously hated that title, and he forced Brian to change the lyrics to I Know There's an Answer for the album release. We talked about Brian Wilson's musical evolution on Pet Sounds, but lyrically, the album represented a major leap forward for the band and it all resulted from working with this unconventional collaborator. Well, he's unconventional in the sense that this is a rock band at the height of its powers in 1966. Who does Brian Wilson turn to to collaborate with? A Madison Avenue guy, straight out of Mad Men. Tony Asher is 26 years old at this point. He's a budding copywriter for an advertising agency called Carson Roberts. Nobody else in the agency really knows music. He's the guy who winds up writing jingles. He wrote one for Mattel Toys. You can tell it's Mattel. It's swell. Some of the deepest lyrics in rock history are written by a guy who writes for commercials, right? Wilson's later partner, Van Dyke Parks, lyricist who worked with him on Smile, you know, he's this mystic, he's this guru. No, not Tony Asher. Tony Asher is like meat and potatoes guy mm-hmm. sitting down working with 
Brian Wilson. They meet by happenstance at Western Recording Studio. Wilson's working on a session. Asher's finishing a jingle. But there are other connections there. This guy, Lauren Schwartz, who tripped with Wilson the first LSD trip, knows Tony Asher. So Brian is guileless. You know, he's very open to the world. Instantly says, come and listen to the music I'm making. They wind up sitting down and writing together. To be clear... Asher has said, point blank, the general tenor of the lyrics always was Brian's. The actual choice of words was usually mine, but I was just the interpreter. Mm -hmm. What is Wilson singing about? I think rock critic Nick Kent said it best. This is an album about a man, it's very much from a male perspective, who is coming to terms with himself and the world. Every song here, one way or another, even the instrumentals, I'd argue, are about a crisis of faith of love, of existentialism, or all of that. It's about confusion. It's about disorientation. It's about finding a reason to move on and to live. Each time things start to happen again, I think I got something good going for myself. But what goes? It's a deep album. It is of a piece. Again, it's coming from a place of pain. Wilson has problems, severe problems with his father. Wilson is confused about love. Wouldn't it be nice if we could be together? He's singing. He's thinking about his wife's sister, not his new bride. You know, it seems the more we talk about it, it only makes it worse to live. There are a lot of things he's very confused about. I can't imagine what those conversations with mm. Tony Escher. I always picture Tony Escher in my head wearing a tie, right? What else would a madman advertising guy wear? And Wilson's like, here's what I'm thinking, you know, and then Escher somehow puts it into words. I interviewed him once, and he said that Brian was so guileless when he would talk to me. I mean, he would say, I have feelings for the sister yeah. of my wife. And Tony would be, like, shocked, you know, like, yeah. you can't say that. And, but he would figure out a way to write about it in a way that was, you know, not smutty because there was a certain amount of innocence coming out of Brian as well. Well, and we I both think, interviewed Brian as well. Yeah, and, and the whole thing about Brian is that innocence is constantly colliding with a loss of innocence, adulthood, the, you yeah. know, the specter of, of growing up. And I think you really hear it in the way these songs are coming to grips with that sort of reality. I once had a dream, so I packed up and split for the city. You know, now the Wilson brothers growing up in Hawthorne, it's not a particularly religious household, but the boys all have a certain amount of spiritualism in their philosophy. Dennis is the surfer, Brian is the seeker, Carl is sort of the George Harrison of the group, the most spiritual, the younger brother, the most truly religious person I know, his brothers would say. They believed in God, but they believed in a a sort of nebulous definition of God. God is love, God is you, God is me. 
Brian sits down and writes a song. His wife, Marilyn's initially pretty freaked out about it because he's singing about God. Mm. Hard to imagine. But here it is, 1966. God has never been mentioned by name, much less in the title, of a major pop hit. Brian says, I've written this incredible song. It's going to be a hit. It's called God Only Knows. And it's asking this question, what would I do without you? Whether it's asking it of this higher power, whether it's asking it of a love in his life, whether it's asking it of himself. I mean, his personality is sort of fracturing at this point. The point is it's asking Mm -hmm. and it's wondering and it's pleading for an answer to set in. Fascinating to me that what may be the most personal song that Brian Wilson ever wrote, he gives to his brother Carl to sing. Carl has this beautiful tenor voice and it's so pure. Brian knows that he's gonna get it, right? There are other versions of it with more voices. In the end, Brian gives it to his brother. His brother does a stellar vocal performance. You know, Greg, I saw the Beach Boys in the mid-90s, right? One of these horrible oldies Mm -hmm. shows, right? Carl was with the group pretty much to the end of his life. And it would be bad. You know, later day Beach Boys, I think a lot of people, you know, get hung up. I can't accept Pet Sounds as a masterpiece because, boy, did they become bad later when they did stuff like Kokomo, right, when it's Mike Love's band. But there was still a moment in every Beach Boys show where Carl would take the stage. The spotlight would be just his, and they'd do God Only Knows. Mm -hmm. And, man, it never was anything less than incredibly powerful. It's hard to listen to that song and not have tearful eyes. One of the greatest songs in rock history, period. Greg and I will fight you if you disagree. (laughs) God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. It is not a hit, Greg. In fact, the album is not a hit. Sells fewer than half a million records upon its release. Well, the thing is, I think the Capitol Records executives were clueless about this record. They go, what what happened to the, you know, the Surf and Sun songs? What happened to the Hot Rods and Girls songs? They were befuddled by this record. They showed so much confidence in it, Jim, that weeks after Pet Sounds came out in May of 66, they issued a Best of the Beach Boys record to compete with their own product on the charts. The Best of the Beach Boys record actually outcharted Pet Sounds when it was released. You know, yeah. it went to number eight on the charts. Pet Sounds only went to A number ten. A repackaged best of hit. Unbelievable. So the record really got shunted to the side in the U.S. market. Different story in the U.K. And I think one of the reasons that this record is held in such high regard 
almost from the start is because of what happened in the UK. For one thing, the smartest move that was made in terms of the commercial impact of this record was hiring Derek Taylor, who was the Beatles press officer, to sort of run the UK campaign for this record. Derek started this whole campaign built around the idea, quote, Brian Wilson is a genius. And it started the whole cult of Brian thing, really, Mm. because in many ways, this was regarded as a Brian Wilson solo record in the UK. In fact, there are a couple of songs on the record where it's basically only Brian Wilson. I mean, it's, you know, the other Beach Boys really weren't present. And we should point out that the Beach Boys largely were not present on this record except for the vocals that they recorded later on because they were touring while it was going on. They weren't even in the country when Brian was working with Tony Asher. That's one reason he didn't work with Mike Love, among many reasons. He wanted a fresh start, but, you know, the guys just weren't in any kind of proximity to help him work on this record. But in the U.K., this record went over big. Well, Um, there was this competition going on. Absolutely. uh, One thing we haven't mentioned is that Wilson had heard Rubber Soul and was very, very impressed. And Rubber Soul is the Beatles' first walk down that psychedelic path. They're getting to the point. There is this back, and they're listening to each other. Without a doubt. I think Wilson was heavily influenced. I mentioned Phil Spector's production being a big influence. The other big one was the Beatles' Rubber Soul record as kind of a lyrical signpost, like, okay, we're going in this direction now. This is where I've got to be. I've got to top this. He's as blind as he can be Just sees what he wants to see The Beatles actually came to the listening party for the record in the UK, and they went away, mm-hmm, okay, mm. we're going to go make this record revolver now, and uh, we, we've taken notes here. Both George Martin and Paul McCartney have been quoted numerous times as saying Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band would not have been made the way it was, would not have been approached the way it was. We wouldn't have spent nine months in the studio working on it had it not been for what we heard Brian Wilson doing with Pet Sounds. She- this day that song god only knows mccartney listed i think as as his favorite song of all yeah. time that he didn't write you know no, he, I mean, he waxes rhapsodic <laughs> about it and of course mccartney would go and uh, play chewing celery right. uh, on the sessions for smile so between pet sounds and the good vibrations released as a single a few months after that this resonated with artists around the world you know somebody like frank zappa paying attention to this stuff and go wait a minute total control by this guy. It's clear that Brian Wilson is running everything there. I want to make my records that way. The Beatles hearing it, I want to make my records that way. Even Ray Davis, I had a conversation with him of the Kinks saying, man, the sound on that record was just incredible. Mm -hmm. Everybody took note of the fact that you could use the studio as an instrument. And Brian Wilson had a big part in that. I mean, there had been other artists that had complete artistic control before that. I'm thinking of like Buddy Holly, near the end of his life, had a lot of control over the way his records were sounding. Sinatra had a lot of control over the way his records were sounding. But the sonic impact of what Wilson was able to do had a huge influence on the rock world. I think, Greg, if we have to put a name on it, we're rock critics. That's one of the things we're expected to do. This genre of orchestral rock or orchestral pop, Mm -hmm. orc pop, the hipsters have abbreviated it, 
begins with pet sounds and you see it thrive well before the 90s when it becomes a big thing. Nick Drake had said he wanted 1970s brighter later to sound like pet sounds. Please give me second grace. Please give me a second face. In the 90s, later, it explodes. There's the orchestral pop bands, the Elephant Six bands out of Ruston, Louisiana, Olivia Tremor Control, Neutral Milk Hotel, Apples in Stereo, all hugely enamored of pet sounds. Before that, I remember sitting talking to Michael Stipe and Mike Mills of R.E.M. when this little record called Out of Time Mm -hmm. was coming out. You know, there's a lot of orchestration on that record, and they were very enamored at that point of Pet Sounds. We hear it live on. Kevin Shields has said that Loveless was very much inspired by Pet Sounds. You know, you have bands like the Fleet Foxes with the harmony intensive thing. You have bands like Animal Collective. Yeah. Personally, I think there's more smile in what they're doing, more chaos. Somebody like Tom York, a guy who who certainly can't harmonize like the Wilson brothers, has said what a huge impact Pet Sounds has on him. I think it's a very special album for many people. It's one that people hold very near and dear to their hearts. The influence is alive and well. I mean, geez, how many times do you own the album already, Greg? Yeah, about seven. Yeah, seven or eight, (laughs) each of us. I have a dozen books on my shelf. But it's an album that really deserves that kind of attention, and we think remains a classic. Let me hear letter A second time through with the horns only, please. All the horns. Here we go. One, two, one, two, three, four. That concludes our classic album dissection of Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, but we want to hear from you. What does Pet Sounds mean to you? Where do you hear its influence on today's music? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Very exciting show next week, Jim. We are talking to a, a legend, Mary Wilson of the Supremes, who will be talking to us about one of the great Motown groups of all time. You can download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such things. Please contact us on Facebook or Twitter. As always, the show is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Scott from Gangsta Island. And I just listened to you guys' weed show. 
And I know you guys did not leave out the kings of smoker hip hop, Bone Thugs and Harmony with Buddha lovers. What do you get when you cross doo-wop, gangster rap, and Jamaican patois? You get a classic anthem to smoking, choking, rolling, and buzzing. All right, guys. Y'all keep doing what y'all doing, and I'll keep listening. One. Hey, this is Kenny calling from Louisville, Kentucky. Jim Stafford's Wildwood Flyer, man. It's got to be one of the best. One day I was out there talking to my brother, and I reached down for a weed to chew on. Things got fuzzy and things got blurry, and then everything was gone. Hilarious, and uh, definitely hit the spot back in the day. You guys take it easy. Great show. Bye. I come to him, my brother was there, and he said, what's wrong with your eyes? I said, I don't know. I was chewing on the weed. He said, let me give it a try. Hey, this is Kevin from Wisconsin. I was uh, listening to your show about Mother Nature, and I was titillated when I heard you play a little bit of Oki from Muskogee. I thought maybe you'd bookend that with uh, Merle's later song, Laugh It Up. Don't get mad when you lose at 21. Let's roll the dice and go on having fun and get some humble Marijuana guaranteed to make you call and laugh it all. <laughs> Which is uh, a pretty good song uh, from a pretty good album. His output was, was still strong near the end there. All right, thanks, bye. Hey, my name is Micah. I'm calling from Virginia, and I like to recommend an album. I happened to stumble upon Sound Opinions just a few minutes ago while listening to my daily drive on Spotify, and I really like what you guys do. Uh, the album that I'd like to recommend is called The Bifrost Incident by a band called The Mechanism. A uh, really interesting guff, uh, sort of a neo-folk alternative type album with uh, some mythology elements mixed in. Uh, and I don't want to spoil the surprise because there is a narrative uh, over the course of the album, but quite the ending. Welcome, my friends, to the place where our darling saints I hope you enjoy the album and have a great day. This is Eric Thomas from Bellingham, Washington, and I wanted to pay tribute to the late, great Neil Innes, who wore many different hats. He was one of the creators and musicians in the Ruddles, the great Beatles parody. He was a founding member of the Bonzo Dog Band. Death cab for duty. Someone's gonna make you pay your fare. The cab was racing through the night. Mm-hmm. And he was also known as the Seventh Python, kind of working behind the scenes with Monty Python. So uh, definitely a creative mind who um, got a lot done, even though he, he often did it quietly behind the scenes. Oh, baby, curves can kill. Death cab for duty. 
Thank you very much. Goodbye. Someone's gonna make you pay your fare. No more messages. Don't you play with faith? Don't leave your love To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Cutie, what have you done? Oh.